If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey guys, welcome to Authentic Talks. I'm glad that you're here tuning in for this episode. Before we dive in, I do want to share with you that the day of the week that you can anticipate and Authentic Talks being uploaded is on Mondays. So going forward, that is the day that you can definitely look forward to it. And we will, from time to time, I will have pod snacks that will be uploaded in the middle of the week or around the end of the week. So yes, we not only are we back, you guys, but we are now going to be with you every single Monday. And for those of you who are new to the show, or if you are a returning listener, I do want to take a moment to welcome you personally and extend an open invitation for you to come back again and again. If you absolutely love the show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and be sure to leave a five-star review in exchange for value that you're receiving of over 200 shows in the Authentic Talks podcast catalog explore if you knew or if you haven't had a chance to get all caught up there's all types of amazing episodes we do have the absolute best guests on the show and I am your host Shante generally and I'm a mindset coach and author as well as a mentor and again welcome to the show I'm excited that you're here You guys, I was reading up on today's guest and I thought that he would be an awesome guest to invite on because there are so many lessons that we're able to learn just through him sharing his story. Now, for those of you who are excited about today's episode that we're not only here on a Monday, but you're curious to wondering who could today's guest be? Let me just go ahead and dive on in, you guys. He was the co-founder and former CEO of Allegiant Bancorp, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. Among many other enterprises, he owned a company that he sold at age 44 for half a billion dollars. Five years after selling his company, he committed a felony and he was incarcerated for his crime eight years later. He now shares his story and what he learned from his rise and his fall, hard-won lessons that can benefit individuals, it can benefit groups, it can benefit businesses. So this episode is for every single one of us who are in the workforce, whether we are entrepreneurs or we are working for a company. You guys, he wrote a book, and the title of his book is The Gray Choice, Lessons on My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back. Please welcome the author of this best-selling book, Sean Hayes, to Authentic Talks 2.0 with Shantae. Authentic Talks is all about authentic conversations. This show is all about growth, love, respect, success, mind, body, and spirit. If you're looking to grow and become your authentic self, then this is the podcast for you. And I am your host, Shantae. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful, Shantae. And I thank you for having me on. And I really hope that we we touch your listeners' minds and their hearts today. Before we dive in, can I have you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you. I am a, a former banker. I am a convicted felon. I'm a best-selling author and a speaker. And I didn't realize this till I was almost 50. I am an entrepreneur. And you, you are one uh, I, I knew from just reading about you and watching a few of your episodes. And so that, that sums me up pretty well. Well, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you. We're just going to dive on in. You wrote this book. Can you share the title of the book? Yes, it's The Gray Choice. And the reason why I chose gray was that in life, it's just not, you know, to use the term black and white, life is not black or white. It's, it's a little bit of black and a little bit of white and a whole lot of gray. And I made choices. And, and there's nothing wrong in my analogy 
of of light gray. But as you go over and over, and at some point you cross a line, and I did that, and it took me uh, about uh, about thirty years of my career to do that. A certain percent of the population, a very small percent, they wake up and do criminal things and all that. Someone like myself, and quite honestly, most people who end up in my situation, you get there one step at a time, and it goes a long way. And I'll tell you a story that happened right after I got out of college and I went to work. They had us take a personality test, and it was administered by a company out of Chicago, and they had all the management trainees in there, young men and young women. And the first question was, have you stole anything from this company? Well, I'd been there like two weeks. Well, the answer was no. Well, the instructor saw my answer and stopped the entire class and said, excuse me, everyone go back to question number one, and you have to answer yes. And so I immediately said, why? And he said, because you will steal something. You'll steal a pad of paper. You'll steal a pen. And a few months later, one of the, a man who was a few, probably seven or eight years older than I was, he invited, he said, Sean, I'm going to, it was a new city for me. I'm going to take you and my girlfriend, we have a blind date for you. And we went to a baseball game and the night was over. And I said, how much do I owe you? And I gave him cash. I noticed he paid for the entire meal on his company credit card. We use company tickets. And so right there, you went from the pad of paper and the pen to doing that. And my analogy today is virtually every employee shops on Cyber Monday. And if you're working for someone and you're shopping when you're at work, then you're stealing a little bit. And it's those little choices that lead you down a path. Now, I'm not saying everyone, and I certainly you know, would want anyone to experience what I've had, but that's the reason for the title. Thank you for that explanation. Let's start with you were in the banking industry, working in the banking industry for over 30 years. 29 years. Can you share what was the name of the company that you worked for? I started out with a large company that's still in existence. And after seven years, I wanted to leave the company. I figured out my last name and still the company's now 120, 111 years old. And the CEOs had the same last name. And so I knew I was never going to run it. And at 29, a man that I'd met said, let's buy a bank. And I'd spent months before trying to look for a company to buy and things like that. And, and I didn't have the money. So don't think that I just woke up and had the money to buy a bank. I didn't. But what happened was, with this gentleman, we raised the money, we bought a bank. And there's a funny story I want to tell you before the day's over. Along the way, I took it public and we sold it for almost a half a billion dollars. And I was the third largest shareholder. So I would made all this money and then I became lost. And this is a long answer to your question, but it's a really important one because you asked me how I got to where I was when I committed my crime. So I sold out to a Fortune 200 and I spent four years working for them. And in those four years, I lost touch with the ground. You know, I, I call myself a guerrilla warrior in business. I lost touch with my ground intelligence and all that. And then in 2008, I was heavily invested in real estate and banking and as the world ended and I would, there were months I was losing $10 million a month, I went wow. back into a small bank. I bought one and this is what led me to a crime. And then in, uh, in the late summer of 2009, I made a choice where I crossed the line and I knew and when I did it. So I ended up seven years with a small company, 15 years with my own, four, I mean, seven years with a large company, 15 on my own, four with another large company, and then back out on my own. And I can tell you what, why I got to that decision, because I think it's important for your listeners. But that's the, the chronology of how I got to where I am. Are you allowed to share the name of the company? It was Allegiant Bank Corp. We traded on the NASDAQ under the symbol ALLE. We were the first public company in America to sell a security after 9-11. That was a whole experience. And because uh, the world stopped and um, and I had a lot of stake then. But, uh, but no, it was Allegiant. But then... When I went, when I sold it was National City. Then I went out and bought a bank called Excel. And that's the bank I committed the crime in. So when I speak to groups, people love the entrepreneurial side because I started with nothing and amassed a huge fortune. So I had this success, which most criminals don't have. And then I turned around and four years after I had this, and I had years of success, but after I had this huge success, then I got myself driven by fear and greed, which I believe drives most business decisions, if not all, I made a horrible choice. And we're definitely going to talk about that because I think that that's kind of important. That's what led to this best-selling book of yours. 
so you were in the banking industry dealing with like mortgages and stuff like that, or the other side of it where it was the checking account, savings account? We did everything. The first bank I bought, I drove 168 miles to get to work. The second bank that I bought was in North St. Louis in the poor census tract, highest murder rate, highest crime rate. And quite honestly, the four years I spent there, I love because people say, you know, everyone in St. Louis, you know, the African-American community, you know this. And it was because, Shante, I had such ground intelligence that this isn't going to shock your listeners in 2023. But in 1990, they thought I was crazy. As soon as I bought that second bank, I put women and minorities, I had African-Americans on my board. We were not the typical bank. We were a bank that served our community and we grew 80 fold over the course. Banks don't do that. Tech companies do, other companies. And it was because of people. It's a people business. But yeah, we did checking, savings, mortgages, business loans. We were out to do business. And every day we tried and we had so much fun and created a culture that was just unbelievable. Because of that position that you held, you became a billionaire? No, we sold for a half a billion. And in your public company, so we had thousands of shareholders. From that, and I made money many other ways. The crime is tied to banking, so I focus on that. Just the sale, I made 20 million. But I made tens of millions in real estate. I've owned fast food, manufacturing, you name it. And like I, I jokingly said, but I was serious, I did not believe I was an entrepreneur. I was an ENY Entrepreneur of the Year. I was a St. Louis JC's Entrepreneur of the Year. And I was the University of Missouri Business Hall of Fame as an entrepreneur. And it wasn't until that award that I said, I guess I really am. Because at the same time, the St. Louis Business Monthly um, named me one of the 12 entrepreneurs of the last 20 years in St. Louis. But before that, I just thought, if you met me, I was reading something this morning and it made me kind of laugh. If you met me, I would say, Sean, I work at a bank. I didn't need to tell someone I was a CEO or I, I bounced around, but ultimately was the third largest shareholder. That, that wasn't important. It, it's about people. And, and that's a whole lot of my message because we live in a world where it's a small world. And if you treat people like you want to be treated and you do wonderful things for them and you, you treat them, like I said, the way you want to be, good things happen. And it happened in my company. It happened in my personal life until I, um, I did something really bad. Compared to back then and compared to today, what would be some of the biggest differences in the way that banking has been ran or going the bank that i walked in 41 summers ago had art in the dining room that was like in a museum and it was i mean it was stayed and it was in and women were very few in in positions of management and minorities were virtually non-existent that was the bad side the good side of it was it was personable and friendly i i equate today's bank to it's like going to mcdonald's or chick-fil-a your credit scored they want to give you a debit card they really don't care about you. So you lost that. And I have to say that the people that I worked for, I couldn't believe this. I was in shock because I was right out of college. If you would have come in for an interview, they would have asked you, did you drive? Because in their world, the women didn't drive cars. That was their perspective. That was the, the, the side that needed to change. What got lost in the shuffle is the government wants risk out of the banking system. So everything's a credit score. And we didn't do business that way. When we built our companies in the in the 90s and, and early 2000s, we did it. We looked you in the eye. We listened. What, what are you going to do? Oh, you've got a podcast business and you need to buy some equipment and explain this to us. And we literally had young men and women, bankers, take the time to understand what you were trying to accomplish. And then we made our decision. We weren't focused. We didn't even run credit scores. What was lost was that ability to help someone that really believed in what they were doing because you can't quantify that in a credit score. So that's how the, the world has changed. And I don't think that's a good thing, but there's a whole lot of good things that have happened like in everything. Are you able to share the story with us a little the crime? bit? crime? Yes, I would like, love to. Can I tell you one funny story first? Absolutely. This is my favorite story. And, and, and I have to tell you, Shanti, before I wrote this book, Less than 15 people knew this story, and nine of them were employees of the original bank. So we buy this bank. At the same time, six banks in St. Louis started. But we bought one, which was different. It was up and running. And uh, we got there, and uh, they had a $1,100,000 in cash in the vault. Now, 10 years later, when I had 30 branches, I didn't have 50000 in the vault, but I had 50 in the ATM, just to give you perspective. And my partner said, Shawnee said, you know what, if we take three quarters of a million dollars out of the vault and send it to the Fed, 
we'll make like an extra $63,000, $65,000 a year because you, you sell what are called Fed funds, overnight investments. So I said, let's do it. He said, well, we got to get somebody to get the money. So I said, no problem. I'll call Brinks. That's who you called. And so I called Brinks and a man or a woman helped me out. And they said, yeah, we can come up next Thursday and we're going to charge you $250. And I said, okay, I'll call you back. And I went to his office and I said, Mike, I said, this is ridiculous. Why would we pay $250? So here's what we did. Now you can say I'm crazy. We loaded three quarters of a million dollars in the trunk of my Buick. Ooh. So literally my car was like this because wow. it didn't like in the movies where they're doing some kind of criminal activity and they carry a briefcase. It was five, tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds. It was a whole, and back those days they made big cars. It was the whole trunk of my car. And I drove 168 miles, 120 of it on two lane roads. It, it is in October, late October. So it's very dark, uninsured. You know, if the highway patrol would have pulled me over, what would they have said? You know, what kind of, what have you done? Rob something? Not to mention if I had had an accident. I can't believe I drove that way. I get home. And this is where, when I told this story, a cousin of mine, the only one on my mother's side, said, Sean, why didn't you sleep in the car? And I said, you know, Johnny, I never thought of that. We took the money and unloaded it and put it in my family room. And then we put blankets on it. And then we all slept on the floor to make sure that if the house burned down or something, we could get the money out. Then at about four in the morning, we got up, loaded it back in the car, drove about 10 miles downtown to the feds from where I live, got in line at about five o'clock with a whole lot of Brinks truck and one Buick. We did that to make an extra $60,000 a year. And that was the way the culture we had. One of, we were mindful of, you know, a good return for our investors and doing the right thing, but that was way out there. So I love to tell that because if anyone doubts that wow. I'm crazy, now they know I'm crazy. <laughs> That's interesting. So, yes, ma'am. That's it, it. It's truly crazy. I have a YouTube video I call cash crazy and culture because it was crazy to do it. It was about cash, but really it was about creating a culture. And I believe culture is so important in business and family. Everybody's family has their own culture, you know, things that you do and things you don't do traditions, you know, just, just things that are cultural in your family. We all have culture by groups we're in and things like that. And, but I think culture is so important in a, in a business. You are absolutely right about that. I think that that's something that a lot of companies are missing today, having that, being able to define what the culture truly is for their company. And if you do that, then people can buy in or they can select out because your culture is not for everyone. And, and I used to say that our culture in the beginning, because I came from a company called UMB, was we hired a lot of people from Boatman. So it's a little bit of Allegiant, a lot of UMB and a lot of Boatmans. And over time, we became truly multicultural. You know, we were Allegiant, but we had all these other people who came from, and we had people who came out of banking and they brought cultural things that made us a better organization. I think that's such an important lesson for society because when you are diverse and you do it and you are inclusive, wonderful things happen. And that's what change is about. And you're able to adapt and do things because you're acceptable to that. But I'm not on a political rant. I'm just, I just, <laughs> I'm on a cultural rant. Here's my crime. And I'll start at the end and say, I justified it because I didn't take money. It's wrong. Okay. But I want to, I think your, your audience has to understand that there was a study in about 1971 by a Stanford professor. And he came up with this conclusion. And I have to believe, I think he's right. And I argued with this even after I committed a crime with myself. He said, if you put any individual in the right or wrong circumstances or a situation with the right or wrong circumstances, they can commit any kind of crime. And we all like to think, well, no, we couldn't kill someone or we couldn't do this or we couldn't do that. But quite honestly, the more I thought about that, the more I said, you know, I think that study's true. So how did I justify doing it? First, I'm not stealing money. I was buying time in my mind. And what I did was we were doing a transaction where the, the economy was bad, real estate was horrible. And a man that I'd done business with for 20 some years had made a career of buying bad assets from banks, real estate, and selling them at a profit. Well, the problem now was it was his bad assets. But I had watched a man that I bought my first bank from make hundreds of millions of dollars doing this. And we had done it over the years, but never in the way that we were doing it now because times were different. And so I told him, I said, I won't lend you the money to buy your bad debt from these other banks 
you have to get other people. And he got a doctor, a car dealer, and a successful real estate man. All these individuals could, could support the loans without the loans performing. That was important. So there were tranches that would bought about $16 million worth of home mortgages for nine. I did it because my bank was not only going to make interest, we had a million dollar fee in there. All this was legal. Here's what happened. One of the banks came along and this man and I had been partners in a real estate project at that time for about a dozen years that a target was going to go on in 2008. And then they backed out when the world ended financially. It was at this one bank. And the bank told us that loan had to be bought in the package. Now, first off, if I had owned 25% or less of the bank, I would have, could have disclosed that to the board. And if they would have proved it, then it would have been legal. But I own 54%. So I knew getting it approved wasn't an option. Therein lies my first crime. So I knew when we did this, but this man had been so successful in doing this that I said, okay, this is okay. He'll liquidate these, it'll all go away. Well, what happened was I didn't realize that we were addressing about a 10th of his problems. And as soon as these three individuals stepped up to borrow the money, he just forgot about them, left them holding the bag, caused a problem for my bank, thus exposing that I'm in this package as a borrower and as also I'm an owner. And that was my crime. The lesson, here's the lesson. The first one is those 15 years that I had the phenomenal success at Allegiant and even the seven before, I had a core group of men and women around me, four people that we met maybe once a week, some weeks, twice a week, certainly several times a month. And they helped me accountable. Your, your listeners who are business owners in particular have a group of people around you and share openly and honestly with them. Have them hold you accountable, even when it hurts. I had lost that. That was number one. And I lost it for, for two reasons. One, we made the right decision to sell. It was the right time. Everything was perfect. The second thing was they were all 20 to 40 years older than I was. And they were done. And we were tired of each other. So I lost my core group. The second thing was I had always paid to have good professionals. And that's actually a story I tell of how I started getting in the grade. And I won't go to that now. but. What happened was, as I was, my back was against the ball, I'm losing money, fear. I'm trying to make money, greed. I didn't pay for good professionals. Mm. So now my second strike. And the third strike, and this was the hardest lesson for me to learn in life. And I learned in a very hard way. And I hope if we don't accomplish anything else from today, and, and certainly not from my book, it's this, that I don't want anyone to make the mistake I made. And the consequences I got, I deserve. But what happened to my children and, elk and you know, people who, who invested money and lost money and things like that? That's what I can't fix. So the lesson was, I believed not 99% of the world, maybe 95, maybe 5%, 1 to 5% of the world, that they want something as bad as you or I want it because you, you're running a business. So you obviously want something and you're willing to sacrifice to get it. And what I learned was, that man didn't, you know, he didn't want it as bad as I wanted it. And even though I had committed a crime, it would have probably gone undiscovered if he'd done what I watched him do so many times before. But he didn't. And quite honestly, I'm a better person for it. Again, I went down a road I wish I hadn't have, but I made that choice. Why is it that you would say you're not an entrepreneur? Everything that you're sharing, it basically leads to that, yeah, entrepreneur. I guess that I liked just I, I like being a CEO don't get me wrong but I like just like I said earlier I like saying I, I work at a Legion Bank I didn't need to tell anybody what I was and if you'll send me your address I'll mail you a book because I'd love for you to read it but there's a story that I was in college and this is one of my crazy businesses the first summer of my freshman year a friend's dad had some equipment we won the hay baling business and made a lot of money but the second summer I went home President Carter had a, a grain embargo against Russia and oil was like twice as expensive and we couldn't make it. We knew we couldn't make any money in the hay baling business. So I kind of messed around for a couple of weeks working in a women's gift shop for my cousin's wife. And I came home and my dad said, well, Sean, first off, I know he's not paying you anything. And second off, you need to make some money because that's your spending money. So Sean, I, I lived in a small town and we had a big fireworks display on the 4th of July. So I called the fire, the, the fire chief up, which was all volunteer. 
Where do you get the fireworks? He told me long and the short of it was I made $20,000 in three weeks selling fireworks. Wow. And you read the story. There's some funny stuff with that. And then the next summer I did it. And then when I got, when I took a real job, this is how old I am. I was one of the highest paid people out of my fraternity in 1982. I was making 18,000 a year. So I would take my vacation over the 4th of July and I'd split the 20 with my cousin. So I'd make 10,000 in my vacation just doing that. So I was an entrepreneur. But the other thing is, is really, I saw films about entrepreneurs in 1976 when I was in high school, but it really didn't become something people talked about until the mid nineties, mm. about, you know, about 30 years ago. And so it wasn't, it was a bad title. I just, you know, I grew up in that world where it was much more important to be associated with a company and a corporation. And I see now that, and you're in this generation, several generations of you, that you figured out it's more about life and it's about experiences, about enjoying what you do. And it's love. It's not about spending 40 or plus years going to the same place, doing the same thing. So the world embraces things so differently. And I love to, I love reading people's stories now and they don't have to be books. They can just be on LinkedIn or on Facebook when I see what they're doing. And I think that's because they have, no one really has control, but they have so much control of their life. And I lived in a generation where, excuse the expression, you work for the man, you know, and you did what they told you to do. I was, I was talking to a guy a few months ago and he'd worked for Dun & Bradstreet and they moved him 12 times. And they said, okay, you're now going to be a corporate vice president. You get to move to New York. You're going to work in New York City. You know what he said? I'm done. He goes, when I started here, that's what I wanted. After 12 moves, I want to enjoy my family. I want a quality of life. And I think that's a great thing that's happened in this country over the last 30 years. As a CEO, do you think that having been in that position, that today they're making decisions that are like more family oriented or by saying you could work from home or... You have to come back to the office. Is that different today than it was then? Well, 30 years ago, the day after whatever, you know, in your state, when a COVID said, you know, you're free, people would have required you to come into the building. So I will say, I believe it is a step in the positive direction. And I reposted somebody something a couple of weeks ago where it talked about a study in the UK on the four-day work week and how it's successful. What my generation... So I was in 1982, I had an offer from a bank, an offer from an IBM, an offer from an insurance company. And I didn't go to IBM because I just didn't understand their compensation, or I would have, trust me. But my whole generation of IBM was eliminated in 1995. So I'm the last of that people who thought they were going to be at one job, one company, one place for a long period of time. And I and and so I think now that society has alternatives. That well, I don't have to do that, and that people I have uh, I have children from 19 to 35, and they are statistically going to have six or seven careers or whatever. That if you're an employer, if you're that CEO today, and you're not cognitive of those young men and women are thinking of other choices, and if and there's so many stories I read now out of COVID of people who started businesses and are doing things, and so so many things are so much different just than they were three years ago. I think if you're a CEO and you don't take that next step over time, you're going to make some really bad decisions because talent 20 years ago, a little about 25 years ago, one of my largest shareholders and, and a man was a great confident mind, very successful. He said, yeah, these tech companies, they say their, their company leaves every night. And he had a big, he had several manufacturing companies. And I said, do you know your talent leaves every night too? And he looked at me and he goes, I don't agree with you. And then a few months later, he said, you know what? I agree with you. He goes, that machine operator is my talent. And I said, yeah. And so if you're not looking at the men and women who work for you as your talent, as the engine of your business, and you're just, you know, excuse the expression, treat them like a mushroom, you know, keep them in the dark, throw manure on them and then cut their heads off. You're going to end up in a bad place. And I think that goes back to culture, which we talked about a little earlier. And I think it goes back to doing the right thing. People want to be treated well. And if you treat them well, they'll do magnificent things. And if you don't, they'll go somewhere else because they can. Is that co more costly to a company to have like that revolving door? Or is it sometimes it, better to... It is. It's th we've figured the cost of you leaving us cost us 30% of your salary. That's a lot of money. You wow. don't want turnover. You definitely don't want turnover. Because turnover, if your average salary is $50,000, it's 15000 just that you're going to expense. Plus, 
the institutional knowledge to me is irreplaceable. My oldest son, after I sold to this Fortune 200, I was one of the top 35 people out of 35, 36,000. Wow. And they would send a jet to get me and with two pilots and, you know, things like that to go to the mothership. And he said, Dad, what's it like? And I said, well, son, here's the problem. At Allegiant, I had nine men and women that were zealots. They believed in what we were doing. And we could change the course of a 400-employee company. At 36,000, it's like trying to turn an aircraft carrier around in a river. You can't mm. do it. That institutional knowledge to replace you might cost us 30000 But we might lose $3 million in what's up here. Because you have that knowledge, you've done that job, you know things and you do things in a way that drive a result. And that isn't just a math equation. And that's why, and, and I truly believe, and it was about 25 years ago when I went through a real personal issue unrelated to business, that I learned how valuable your mental health is. Ooh, and, yes, and I, indeed. I said where I made my mistake is I'm an undergraduate finance, graduate finance. I should have gotten undergraduate in psychology and got a graduate in finance because understanding people and organizational behaviors are so important because that's an intangible. And I don't drink Coke or Pepsi, but when I was a kid, it was just Coke and Pepsi. There weren't 800 brands of things. Well, that world has changed. And if you think there's just two of something, you're not going to be around. And I use that as the analogy. Now then there's, I go to the market now, I'm like, my gosh, you can buy about anything to drink. And I don't mean alcohol. I'm not alcoholic. There's two aisles of it. And, and that's how the world has evolved. And you have to evolve your business like that. And that's even if you're the local nail salon or hair salon or any of those things. And, and that's where, you know, entrepreneurs are wonderful and they're adaptable. And I think that's the best thing about human beings is we're adaptable. And we've adapted to COVID. The question is, is I think we're only a few steps down a long trail. And I think it's a good trail. I think I've heard a lot of people talk about how their employers are offering them more options where they can go in the office for those three days a week or four days a week and then work from home and then other companies completely shutting it down. And so it's interesting to hear your perspective on how you feel about that. Well, and I'm old enough to remember this in your woman. So you can relate to this. When I started out, if you had a child, you weren't getting a day off paid. I mean, there was no paid leave for having a child. Thank goodness for change. <laughs> exactly. That, that's you, you, pick, you hit the nail on the head. And not only was it the right thing, look at all the good that's come out of it. Yeah. But we don't, as humans, sometimes we're very adverse to change. So I have to ask you this question. We've heard stories of people that spent, because you spent some years in prison, right? Yes, ma'am. We've heard stories our entire lives about how when a person goes to prison and then they get out of prison, basically it's like you're, you're ostracized from society. You can't get a job, you know, and I don't know if that was just for certain people of color or is that across the board that you can't go back out there and get a job, really be able to make it unless you do entrepreneurship and start your own business. Well, I tell you, that is the best question you've ever asked. And no one's asked it that articulately. So thank you. It is horrible what happened to men and women who've been incarcerated. And I experienced that. And in the book I talk about, and I want to tell you about my experience. But it is in particular, because I have many friends before prison and then during prison are people of color. And it is worse on them. Mm -hmm. But the one hope, I'll go with the hope. The hope is someone said, Sean, do you understand how many convicts are entrepreneurial? It's because they have to be. And they're right. That's a good in it. But that's such a small segment. Here's the bad in it. I knew I was going to write this book. I knew I was going to speak. And before I went in, actually, a woman said, you need to do this, this, and this. And I have to say this. I said, quite honestly, Gail, I don't think I'm interesting, that interesting. Then I read enough books. And I said, you know what? I'm not that interesting, but I'm not bad. And the book is just done. I'm just so blessed with the book. But here's the negative in it. So I thought I wanted a job that allowed me to have the middle of the day. Because the government requires you to have a W-2 job. That's a requirement for every felon that comes through the federal system. So I went to the largest hospital system here, about 20-some thousand employees, and I applied to make beds at a 2 to 10 p.m. shift because that gives me the morning to do my stuff and I go in and do it. And they said, you know, if you need to take days off, we'll let you do it Saturdays and Sundays because we just want you to work as many hours a week 
excuse me, she can. And I told him I was a felon. Then they came back after several weeks and said, we can't hire you because you're a felon. So I went to the second largest hospital chain that has about 12,000 people here. And I applied to work in the morgue moving bodies because I thought, what a great subtitle from the book, from the boardroom to the morgue. Well, same thing. They interviewed me. I can. I told them what I was. They said, no problem. We'll have to have you. Can you start? And then the, the Friday before I started, I got the email, uh, we can't hire you because you're a felon. So if you can't make beds and you can't move dead bodies, that should give you an idea of how hard it is mm-hmm. for someone to build, rebuild their life. And that's a horrible statement about society and the social justice. I'm, I, I can't say I'm an advocate, but the system is broken. Mm-hmm. Criminal justice side of it, what happens to people, they don't, there's virtually nothing to learn there. And then when you get out, you, you're met with that and you are ostracized. I do have a, a friend of mine, he's in his late forties and his name's Anthony Hayes. He's an African-American, very popular. I love him. And uh, we have lunch about once a month. And last month at lunch, he said, Sean, he goes, I read your book. I loved it. He goes, do you realize what you did? And I said, well, no, Anthony, what did I do? He said, do you know that you freed yourself? You hit the restart button. And, and Sean, I did not think of it that way. And I've had one other person since that. And then literally this morning, I talked to a woman I've known 40 years. And she goes, you know, Sean, Anthony's right. You have. Because now then it's out. I mean, if you didn't know, now it's there. Right. And the government wants you to have that scarlet letter on your head. So I've got it. And um, am I proud that I got it? No, but I'm accepting of it because I did it to myself. But your, the crux of your question is, we as a society have to help those men and women find jobs, create opportunities, because there's so many very bright people. And, you know, I won't justify anyone's crime but who had circumstances and facts that were against them from the day they were born or during childhood, and they need to be helped. Mm-hmm. And I will, I will say this, and this is a social justice thing, because I write about this in the book. I realize that drugs and alcohol are a huge problem in, in the, and they create criminal activity. What I didn't realize till I went in the system for 37 months is how many people have been sexually abused and the effect that that has on people. And again, that's one of those things we don't talk about in society because gosh, you know, that's not something you can talk about. Well, it's something we need to talk about. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Are you allowed now to, to uh, maybe like coach or be like a, you know, like a, a support for another banking institution? If there's like a CEO who wants advice from you? If it's in the financial world, I have to get permission. If oh. it's not, then no. What I do now, and I love it. And this is one of those things. If you have religion, it's God, or if you have, you know, if you have a higher being theory. If you don't, it's Mick Jagger says this. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. So through this, I've um, I have different. It's ironic. The son that was angry at me when I first started is now, and I don't. I love them all equally, but he's now a number one son in communication, and they go back and forth. But I really want better relationships with my children. Well, the job that I have, which is so good for what I do, is I drive a school bus. And I, I start at 5.20 in the morning. I'm done about 9.20 and I start at 1.30 and I'm done sometime between 4.30 and 6. And about two months ago, I'm driving the bus back and I started laughing. And I said, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And I have 10 wonderful middle school African-American children that have come out of their shell and they love me and we and I love them and we have all this interaction. And then because I'm, decent at what I do. I get other ones. And a few weeks ago, this little bitty African-American girl, she couldn't have been three foot tall. I went to her school to pick her up and I hadn't seen her in several weeks because I was just substituting. And she, her teacher brought this, she ran up and hugged me. And then when I dropped her off, her mother was standing there and she ran up and hugged me before she left. So I do have something that's rewarding that I enjoy doing that lets me do the things you talked about. But I get this great feeling about giving and helping others. And I think I've learned so much through this journey that is just invaluable. So I, I get to do all the things I want, just some things I have to ask permission for. Do they treat you really bad in prison? Like all the no, um, here? Now, this is an interesting thing. I spent 15 months in a county jail, a federal holdover. I spent then 22 months in two different federal prisons. The county jail, and I grew up in the country in a different time, and I equated that to high school, where there was a fight every day, over food or fee or just stupidity. It was very violent. 
federal prison, the first one I went to, I equated it to the summer camp that the brochure was dated by 20 years. Because it might have looked like this, and it wasn't good, but it was a lot worse. It was run down. And then the third place I went, I equated to, it was on a military base, and I equated it to a fraternity house without girls. In all three of those situations, I never saw sexual harassment or anything, you know, nothing like that. Is there a lot of violence in, in where I was where 36 men were housed, where there was only supposed to be 24, where literally you were in a six by 10 cell with three people made for two, someone slept on the floor, lots of violence. And I was the only person that had been handcuffed. I never went to court that I wasn't handcuffed or shackled. And uh, I met a man who said, you were in that county jail. He goes, I was there six days and I was scared to death. And I said, I was there 15 months and I never was afraid because I'm just that kind of person. And also, I didn't have the problem that some people have because I can relate to any race or color because of my background. And mm -hmm. I don't see color and I don't treat people like that. If you had an edge, you were going to get hurt. So there is that. It's, it's, it's not a good place. You don't want anyone to go there. And more importantly, they don't really do the things that they would let you and I as taxpayers think they do to, I'll use the word rehabilitate or let people re-enter in a better way. And that's the sad part. Mm -hmm. They're just putting one more strike in somebody who got up and had one or two against them when they were born or in their childhood. And that's the sad part. That is something. Were you a multimillionaire? Yeah, yeah. Lots wow, and lots. That's, that's like, to, that blows my mind. Going from millions to, did you get to keep your money when you were well, in prison? Because I know since you came out, you had, you were able to probably like, rebuild your your life mm -hmm. to a certain point do they just like wipe you clean when you go there well they do so i had lost so much there wasn't much for me yet and that led to my crime but no you, it, it's a, it's a long rebuilding thing i've been it's been three years since i've been out now you learn who your friends are in life mm -hmm. and you learn who aren't i'm not angry at anyone or any of that but i i have a much better opinion and i was out to dinner last night with four people from my work I'm one of the 2% Caucasians there. So I was out with four friends that I love. It was so fun because we were in a, in a Hispanic Mexican restaurant and a man from my prior life came over and his wife and said hello, which was very kind of him. But I know they were sitting there looking at, well, this is very car, far cry from who he could have been having dinner with. And you know what? I had the most wonderful evening I could have ever had. It didn't matter what they did for a job or who they were. And that's, what's, that's what life's about. And I say this, I am truly the happiest I've been. Now, there are a few things I'd like to change in my whole life. See, I'm good physically. I, I went through a lot of health issues. Uh, there's no health care in the prison system and things like that. I really, really know I'm in the right place and I know I'm doing the right things. And that's what makes that's what makes every day exciting. Well, I love the fact that you were able to like separate ego because sometimes I think what happens is people get to a place where ego is just there so big, like especially coming from like a CEO position and then having a hard time wrapping their brains around like, I'm no longer doing that, but now I'm doing this. And the fact that you're finding value there and bringing value to people, sharing your message and helping other people to avoid making maybe the same mistake. I think it's a beautiful thing. Well, I thank you for that. And I, I, I want it to be, and I think it is, and time will tell. And I believe time will bear fruit. But it's only because of people like yourself who are kind enough to take the time to interview me and introduce me to your listeners and let them see that there, there, is, there are so many good things in this world and there is so much hope, yet we have so many challenges. Can we talk about like smart risk taking? Yes. And not only did I do it, and I'm writing a book on it again right now because I believe in it so much. I've given this talk to groups and actually ironically more women's groups than anybody else over the last 30 years, let's say a thousand times. And I've told this story at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and meeting 10,000 times. But I believe that the smart risk taking that a man or woman should do is, and it's exactly what I did. And I could name hundreds of people who did the same thing. So I didn't invent this, but the art, being able to articulate it is what's important. And that is you have experienced something and then you wake up one day and you're ready to do it on your own. And that's smart risk taking. And what you, what the, in, in what I would use example, say that you're a beautician and you're working there and you're renting a chair. We're already an entrepreneur because you're only eating what you kill. 
but you sat there and you go, wait a minute, there's, there's seven chairs here and the owner has one and the other six are rented out and I'm paying so many hundred a month. And so you learn that and you, when you're there, you're doing your job with your clients, but you're watching what other people who are different than you are, how they treat their clients and results they get. You're looking at what the owner does, you know, the hours they're open and the things that they do. Maybe they use social media. How do they get people in there that aren't just people? Who you watch all those things. And then you wake up one day and you, you don't rent the nicest space. You go find the cheapest space. You don't put new furniture in new, you know, stations in. You get used. You do those things. And, you know, and these are the things that I talk about. That's what make you successful. And you realize that if I had a person that did nails, I'd, I'd make more money because that person that ran that, they made a good living, nothing wrong with them, but they didn't want to be in the nail business. So you put in nails and maybe there's a, something, a couple other things, you know, maybe there's, you know, you know, on Fridays, if you have a special makeup person, there are things like that. I'm not, I don't know. Someone to do it. their eyelashes and Bingo. eyebrows. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you've got it. And so that is a very smart risk to take. But what, what first thing is you have to make a plan. It doesn't have to be 27 pages. It can be two or three. It can be handwritten. You have to look at, and you have to study the economics and say, well, day one, 80% of my clients will come with me because I'm a mile further away and people just go there because they went there. But I've got three people, two from where I was, because I didn't have a non-compete. I don't want to violate anybody. And I've met other beauticians at training and things like that. That one's five miles this way, and they'll come there. And I'm going to give them a discount. Maybe it's so much a week. I'm going to let them for the first three months only pay 50% of that because I want them to come in and drive traffic. And I found this nail person and this eyelash person. And that's a very smart risk-taking. Seldom does someone who does that. And that's why I'm writing this book. I think it's so important. And by the way, this will now be an example. You've helped me. Thank you. Because I want multiple examples. But the point is, is that that's smart risk-taking. But going to a new shopping center or you know, a new space and buying new this and doing that is not good because now then you're adding overhead and, and the low cost company usually wins and you don't need those costs when you start out. Now, if you do really well and things are great in two or three years, go move into a new place. Or really what I would tell you to do is find the best man or woman who's working in your salon there and say, okay, I'm going to give you 20% of this salon and you're now going to be operating as the owner. And I'm going to go open this new one five miles away in this center and do that. And then you do that over and over. And then you've built a business. That to me is the smartest risk taking that a man or woman can do. That's good advice. And then I do have to ask you this. You knew when you went in that you were going to like write your book. A seed was planted back then. That's right. What, what happened was I, I found out the week before Christmas in 2015, I was going to get indicted as they said any day. And that that's worth reading the book anyway, because. Of course, they told me to do something. I did it. Then that got me 18 days in jail because I had my passport on me after they told me to carry it because they said I was going to leave the country. I said, well, I wouldn't have had it if you hadn't made me take it. Different story. But I was so depressed in early 16 that I called this woman who has a large speakers bureau. And I said, and I told her what was going to happen. And I hadn't told anybody but my fam, my wife. And she said, Sean, you're very articulate. You've spoken to groups forever. And you have a great story. And that's when I said, I'm not that interesting. But I knew in the back of my mind, that was a way I could rebuild my life. I didn't look at it as Anthony did. It really, it has freed me. I'm so, I'm so much happier the last three weeks. I got that out of it was a bonus. And when I, and I, when I was in prison, I wrote and I took notes and did all kinds of things. And then when I got out three years ago, I didn't do anything. I knew I was going to do it. And then two years ago, uh, I had cancer come back for the second time. And then the first part of 22, I spent three months trying to die, literally, from, uh, I had pneumonia. I don't have an immune system. I've had Hodgkin's lymphoma twice. And so when I got pneumonia, I was really down. When I was in bed for those three months, I dictated the book. Okay. So that's what kept me sane and gave me a purpose. And that and I slept all the time. And so then I did it. I met with a childhood friend about 10 days ago. And I said, you know, Matt, of all the people who grew up with us, I was the one I would have said would never write a book. And I have to say, it is a wonderful thing. I, everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. And if some of your listeners are this close, do it. Because what I thought didn't matter matters. And I've gotten hundreds of emails and hopefully your listeners will email me if they want to. I answer questions. I take calls and do things like that. And I haven't had any negative ones. And some of them are people who know me. 
more than three quarters of them are people who've never met me or seen me or anything. And so it's, it's really been a wonderful experience. I'm glad you wrote the book. It is very interesting, you guys. I know you're absolutely going to get into it because I was reading up on it and I was just like, wow, this is interesting because how often do you get to talk with someone that's been on both sides of the fence, like where you've been very successful, went to prison, come out, and then have been able to turn that around and share your story and that is like a lot of pressure that gets to come off. <sighs> you get to breathe. It's like, yeah, everybody knows. A lot of people probably knew back then where it was, you know, but I mean, now there's a new generation of people that are going to be made aware of this, of your story. And for me, I feel like it's inspiring because you, it, it makes you say, whoa, like if you are someone who's walking in that gray area, you can kind of maybe rethink it. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's the analogy that that I use a, a real life experience in the book, but this is one that is exactly true. If you're in L.A. and you want to fly to D.C. and you're off by one degree, you end up in New York City. Speed, time and distance. So you take a 30 year career and you're just off a little bit and you wake up and you're in the wrong place. And that's what happened to me. And that's what I want people to do. I want them to think about it. I want them to surround themselves with people that will hold them accountable. And I want them to, to look at relationships in a different way. And I read about you that you're so kind and caring. And I know that's genuine. And that's what life's about. It's about truly relationships and how you treat people. And if you do that and you want to, and I, I did a video on this because it's so true. If you do what you love and you want to make money, you'll make money. If you want time off, you have time off. Whatever you're trying to get, you'll get if you do what you love. If you don't do what you love, you're going to be a miserable human. So I want everyone to do what they love. That's when you said, how can I do something? How can someone do something that doesn't have a smart risk, a lot of risk, a smart risk taking? I like smart risk taking a lot. I'm going to use that too. The point is, it's doing what you love and then doing it the way I said, and you're going to do well. Whatever well is for you. But well has to be for you, not for the world. Mm -hmm. and that's therein lies another problem you're not yeah. living your life for anybody but yourself and when you've been what i've been through one thing that i would tell anyone is all those people who you thought were thinking about you aren't they're yeah. not wasting their time thinking what you're doing good or bad or anything they're looking at themselves and their issues and things like that i'm not telling you to be selfish at all but i'm telling you when it comes to what you're don't ever worry about what someone else thinks Oh, I love that. That's a good share. How was it with your family when you were away for those few years? Well, it was uh, horrific for, I ended up going through divorce. So it was horrific from the standpoint of ruining a marriage. I have five children. And before I went in, I had children who didn't talk to me who did. And now I have children who don't. And and, and actually somebody the other day said, Sean, I knew you because a woman actually, she took me to lunch on Thursday. She's known me almost 40 years. And she said, Sean, she goes, I know you were the model father. And I said, Judy, I will say this. I don't worry that my relationships won't be healed with him. I know they will. I just don't know when and I don't know how. And there's a chapter in a book about my father and I in the same night. He didn't commit a crime, but we had that same you know, issue that I think many, many children have with their parents. And it worked out. And luckily for me, it was a couple of years before he died. It got better over time but there was a defining trip that I made home and I write about that. And I know that'll happen with my children. Then I have relation. I had one sister who COVID cost her her life. She was 13 years older and she has two sons. And now my relationships with them are, are just better than ever because they lost her father nine months. Not uncommon for people who've been married 50 years to die very close in proximity. You know, the thing that I would say is that's the family side. What's more important is, those thousand people who said they were friends, I'm down to the handful who are. Ooh, and that's, that's good, what's though. rewarding. That is rewarding. Yes. You I'd do know who they are. And the I'd rather is, have like, five. I'd rather have five good friends or three good friends that I could trust than to have 900 that are not really looking out for yeah. my best interests. Correct. Wise. You hit the nail on the head. And that's what you find out. Somebody told me a long time ago in life, you have a handful of people. And when I was so sick, four men 
came to literally every other day to just make sure I was alive, to bring food and to do things because I couldn't get out of bed. And you learn who cares about you. And it isn't always who you think it is. That's why I said earlier, don't worry about what all those people think. Live your life. Do the right things. Pursue what you love. Treat people like you want to be treated. And everything will be fine. Because you can't make other people happy. I absolutely love that. If someone wanted to pick up the book, where can they find the book? Well, you can go to Amazon or any of your bookstores. Or you can go to SeanHayes.com. And there's a buy button. I have to say this because, you know, there's a real superstar named Sean Hayes, but I'm the Sean Hayes who spells my name right. S-H-A-U-N. <laughs> because I, when I was in college, there were three Sean's in my fraternity and I had a U, one had a W and one had an E and it was tall, medium and short. So when they called in those days, they had a pay phone in the hallway and they'd say, and they go, was it the tall one or the short one? So, um, but I always like to say my spell my name right. So. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the great choice lessons on my journey from big time banking to the big house and back. This book is available as Sean said on Amazon right now, you guys, you can pick it up or go to seanhayes.com to get your copy today. Even on the cover, you guys, it has a picture of a man in handcuffs, which really gets your attention. And then as you start reading it on the back, it's like you're pulled in because you want to know like what happened. And, you know, obviously in a podcast that's, you know, 40 minutes or 45 minutes, we're not going to be able to cover like the entire book. So definitely books have way more detail. Read the book, get what you can get and take it with you. That's what I say. I love reading. I love hearing other people's stories too. So do I. That's a wonderful, wonderful close. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for hanging out with me and for sharing your story. And I'm sending you so much positive energy. I know that you're going to help so many people. And and I'm glad that you are in a better place, like where you're able to step back and see everything for what it truly is and to know that life is really the the most valuable thing um, and, and then being able to give back to people. We do be thinking sometimes over here that like a title really means everything, but we don't know like how many people are rolling over at night, not really sleeping well or um, having to make those really tough decisions. Because I know even as a CEO, you have to sometimes think about laying people off. There's just a lot that goes with that, you know, and now you're doing you're embracing kids. You know, I love it. Those are the most impressionable people, believe it or not. It's fun. I, I just say I, I enjoy every day. I, I get up at four and I don't go to bed till 10 and I'm never tired. Is there anything that you want to leave our audience with before we end our show? Anything that we well, didn't cover I, that we that you want to share or cover? I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't do anything other but say this. I've Having researched you before this, your audience is so lucky to have someone like yourself out front talking to people like me because that's what makes the world a better place. And I would just challenge them to share some of your podcasts with their friends. And, and you know, people think about that. And they all, I think, that, don't be afraid to do it. Just one that was one of your favorites that Shantae's done. Just do it because you'll make a difference in somebody's life. And that's what's most important. So that's what I would close with. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And I appreciate it so much. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Well, Sean, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I really enjoyed the talk. You guys, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and found that there was value. I want to share with you that there's many lessons that you can learn by reading Sean's story. There's many things that you'll discover how to define your ethical moral compass when it comes to building a business, when it comes to building wealth and your reputation the real-time consequences of pushing the ethical envelope in business decision-making when the risk isn't worth the monetary reward. You can also discover the critical value in building a team you trust to guide the effective thinking and choices company make to succeed, and how to redefine security and success apart from how much money you have in the bank. You know, in The Great Choices, it's an honest account of one man's losing his ethical footing and the inevitable fallout that reshaped his life forever. So this book is available now for you on Amazon. And be sure to leave a review, 
go back and leave a review. This helps the authors out so much. Again, the name of Sean's book is called The Gray Choice, Lessons on My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back by Sean Hayes. I'm sending you all tons of positive energy and lots of love. Please be sure to take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I'm Shantae with Authentic Talks.